we get to start kind of a new conversation uh, for the next three weeks. You know uh, that Jesus ranks what matters most, right? Like sometimes we take the scriptures and we act like this is a very flat book, but it's not. See, it goes like this. Um, we act like it's a very flat book where if you take a look at it, everything in here has equal weight and value. And the problem with that is that you take a journey of a people and you try to quantify one moment that looks and, and sounds and feels very little like Jesus and put it on equal level with Jesus. And what you end up doing then is being able to use this wonderful life-giving book for whatever purposes you want to use it for. And there's been a lot of damage that's been done over the years because of that. And so uh, I, I find it helpful that Jesus himself chooses to help us through this process. So uh, there are 613 laws in the scriptures. And one of the things that the, the ones who studied the law and taught the law and, and the religious leaders, they would sit around and they would talk about the value of these different commandments. All right, And a big discussion point was, how do we prioritize these? You can't follow 600 plus things at the same time equally. So what's most significant? Uh, so Jesus comes onto the scene, and he's kind of radical because he's kind of less legalistic about following all these particulars. And he begins to talk in broader, broader uh, realms, which makes people really uncomfortable because he's also starting to tweak and change some of the things. So they ask him. Some of the leaders ask Jesus um, in the book of Matthew. They specifically ask him uh, what the most important laws are. This was not an odd question. It was intended to kind of put him on the spot, for sure. But it wasn't, an odd, it wasn't that odd of a question. It would be pretty typical in these conversations. And, uh, and one of the reasons, it's interesting, even though they debated this, you talk about talking out of both sides of your mouth, even though they debated these things, what they wanted him to do was say one thing, and therefore they could say, oh, so you don't care about blank. So even though that's what they would often do, ranking these things, when they asked him to do it, the whole intent was to say, if you say one law is more important than the other, then we can say, well, don't you care about all of God's law? All right. So anyways, they ask him this, and here's what Jesus says. Um, when he, he says, uh, one, of, one of them questioned uh, Jesus with this, teacher, what's the greatest commandment in the law? All right. And here's what Jesus responds with, and this has formed the foundation for so much Christian discipleship over the next 2,000 years. Jesus replied, love the Lord with your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. So then Jesus says, I'm not really going to play your game. I'm not going to answer your question because I'm going to form my own response here. They say, which is the greatest? And I'm going to give you two. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So Jesus says, if you see life through this lens then all of these other things that you spend all your time debating, they will start to work themselves out because this is the greatest of everything. Now, the reason that I'm starting with that in this conversation is we tend to break down loving God and loving others into two vastly different categories, right? So we talk about like, hey, I'm going to love God. Well, let's talk about loving God today. Next week, we'll talk about loving our neighbors. The problem is that I'm not sure that that's what Jesus was into because Jesus says the second is, is like it. And I think the idea that Jesus says, these two greatest laws, the second is just like it. Why, how can loving your neighbor be just like loving God? Uh, what is Jesus getting at here? And I, I wonder if maybe, maybe it means that when we love others, we are loving God. I think that's a fair interpretation. Um, you know, like when Jesus says in Matthew 25, that because people have cared for the poor actively, they're actually caring for him. Right? Maybe, um, maybe it means when we... Um, 
When we learn to love God, we find that loving others becomes this incredible byproduct. And they're not disconnected because one will always lead to the other. We, we don't know exactly what Jesus was getting at, but it seems like these things are connected. All right, speaking of connection, let me take you back. So we always want to be talking about how at LifePath, how to grow in the ways of love. Because, because we are told that God is the essence of love. So our job as disciples is to learn to love Jesus in deeper ways because it transforms who we are and learn to love our neighbors in active, compassionate, merciful ways that helps reveal what God's heart is for the world, all right? So a couple of weeks ago, I heard about this, um, this book, and there's a writer named Anne Lamott. She wrote this book like a decade ago, and it's called Help Thanks Wow, all right? Real simple. That's the title. And, and the, sub, the subtitle is The Three Essential Prayers, all right? So Anne Lamott, um, really wise spiritual writer, she, she breaks down that these three words are open the door to how we love God in prayer, to be able to say help, thanks, and wow. And if we have a life that's characterized by that in our prayers, we will find that we connect with God more deeply. So I'm hearing this, and all I can think about is Jesus is saying, love Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is like it, love your neighbors. And I start thinking, these are three great words. I wonder what, would, what it would look like if we spent a few weeks looking at these not just as we relate to God, but how they could transform our discipleship as we relate to one another. So that's what we're going to do. For three weeks, we're going to take a look at one word. We just got done going through the entire 50 chapters of Genesis in how many weeks? Five? What's that? Averaging 10 chapters a week. One word now for three weeks. All right? Simple. Well, the word's not simple. The word's help. But it is simple. That's what the point is here. So... Um, that's what we're going to do. We're going to, we're going to have some fun with that. I was captured this week by, by Paul's words uh, to the Roman church when he's helping them understand. He, he gives this huge list of the way that they behave if they, um, if they are, are kind of acting in the way of Jesus. And he has this one sentence in Romans 12, 9, and it's, it's very simple. It says, love must be sincere. The word is genuine. Love must be without a mask on. That's what the, the uh, Greek behind it is. The, where do we get hypocritical from? Um, love must be without masks. So I just want you to think for that for a moment. Love must be genuine. Love must be without a mask on. How would life look like if you related to other people without a mask? Over the last couple of years, we've been very comfortable with masks. We've had to. And that's been because of love, right? <laughs> yeah. Right over here. We've, we've learned that there's times that we need to wear masks because we want to love our neighbors. Um, however, as we continue to journey on, um, we find that it's all too easy to wear masks um, in all of the emotional and relational ways that maybe get in the way. Uh, we've become comfortable with masks because if we don't have a mask on, we feel like we might appear weaker than we'd like to appear to people. And we might be seen as incomplete, right, and, and maybe in need of help. It's super hard to ask for help, isn't it? When we don't have a mask on in our lives, we look around and we say, oh man, people are going to see that I'm like incomplete, that I don't have it all together. Uh, my, my dad was a, a college professor for 40 years. Who does that anymore? 40 years, same, same exact job. And uh, one of the things he did with his students 
because he was an exercise physiologist, and so he talked about things that can get pretty complicated about the human body and stuff at times. And at the beginning of his um, semesters with certain classes, he would have all these little note cards, and they, he, would give each, he would give a note card to each student. And as they're sitting at their desk, if, if he got going, and you can imagine, I mean, I'm not that... You've, he's been here before. You've, you've seen him. Like, he's not that different than me. If, if he is going into something really and he's moving fast or, or he's talking about a complicated uh, concept, these little cards had a tiny little stop sign on. And so a kid is sitting in class and all they have to do is just flip the stop sign up and down. Say, and it says stop. And what he would do is then he'd say, you know what, let's just take a little bit more time with this concept. Let's, let's unpack it just a little bit more, um, and let's make sure, and if there are any questions, let's, let's talk about them. Because it's really hard to ask for help, right? It is so hard to raise your hand and say, I don't, I don't understand, or I feel like I'm falling behind other people, or this is hard, right? And so, so that, that whole journey was to try to help people say help more easily, because we need to break down barriers in order to actually get to this point of asking for help. Now, the scriptures are full of this imagery that God is actually a God who meets us in particularly special ways when we cry out for help. That God meets us when we say, I need help, more than when we act like we don't, all right? And so you get these stories all through, um, all through the, the scriptures. I love Psalm 121. I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Um, these, are, these are glimpses of what the psalmist understood, that when I am in need, I have learned that God is a safe and spacious place to explore that and be honest about that as a first instinct. Um, psalm 46, the psalmist, and again, this is, the, psalm, the psalms are super emotional in their responses. I, I think it's, they teach us more about humanity than about God, in my opinion. Right? The Psalms aren't trying to write theology. They're trying to write about the human experience. That's why you see people being able to bring anger, confusion, uh, wonder, cry out, longing, excitement, beauty, celebration. So, um, so they're the lived experience of people, which is so valuable to us. And that's how God speaks to us through the Psalms often. God is our refuge and our strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Psalm 46. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way. Think about that. And the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. So the psalmist is saying, if everything around me is shaking and I feel completely out of control, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging, the psalmist says, God is my refuge and strength. There is something steady. I wonder if, specifically a life path, I'm not sure we talk enough about crying out to God for help. And... I think I know why. I think a lot of us have been turned off by ATM theology, right? ATM theology says if I punch in the right code, I get what I want from God. And, and, so, and this is so I can, I can control God, right? Because as long as I pray with enough faith, God gives me what I desire. And, and that's a real twisting of a lot of half-truths <laughs> that are beautiful truths in the Scripture that have become a formula. And we're like, we know that that doesn't happen because sometimes we pray fervently for things that don't come to pass. And so what we end up doing is we say, well, maybe I should just call into question all of it. Maybe that's just not like, you know, maybe I can't count on God at all. And I, un unfortunately, I think that that's um, a natural response, first of all. 
It's okay if you feel jaded because people have told you that horrible things happened because you didn't pray with enough faith and ask God for help. But I think the bigger problem and, and the bigger thing that we're missing is that when, as long as we don't try to figure out all of the ways that God helps us each time, if we, don't pre, if we don't have it figured out, well, God will definitely do this if I cry for help. If we take a step back and say, I don't control God, all of a sudden we find that maybe if we do cry out and when we do cry out, God meets us in all sorts of transformative ways. And there's such truth there. Um, and, and, it's, and it's worth kind of holding on to. Um, and and I want to talk about that more in just a little bit. But my, my whole goal is to, um, to take time to say that there's something about our weakness and our openness and our crying out that God comes and somehow in the deep places within us changes the experience. Um, so, so being able to cry out for help is, is valid and worthwhile. I want us to do um, something with Psalm 77. I want you to think... Um, about something that feels a bit overwhelming in your life right now, or something that has felt overwhelming that God met you in, all right? So it can be one or the other. It can be like, oh, Lord, I just, I don't know what to do. Or it can be, wow, I remember this moment where, like, I was so exhausted and overwhelmed, and I said, Lord, I don't know, and, and God met me, okay? So this can either be reflecting on a memory or bringing it in real time. But I want to read Psalm 77, and I want you to just lean into it as spiritual formation. So we're not going to teach through it, anything like that. I just want to invite you to rest in crying out to God and in the experience. And I want you to hear your own story in the psalmists. So if it's helpful to close your eyes, great. Psalm 77. I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord, and at night I stretched out untiring hands, and I could not be comforted. I remembered you, God, and I groaned. I meditated, and my spirit grew faint. You kept my eyes from closing. I was too troubled to even speak. But I thought about the former days, the years of long ago. I remembered my songs in the night. My heart meditated and my spirit asked, will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? Then I thought, to this I will appeal. The years when the Most High stretched out his right hand. I'll remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember the miracles of long ago. I will consider all your works and meditate on all your mighty deeds. Your ways, God, are holy. What God is as great as our God? You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the people. With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. So just take a moment. Just take a moment and hear the words of those who have gone before us and let it maybe just soften a little bit more an opportunity to say, all right, Lord, even if I feel like the night is dark and you've totally forgotten me, crying out for help is still a safe place. 
there's many moments of desperation that we hear about in the scriptures, and God meets people in it. Um, but my question for us this morning is, what if, we, what if we create new practices that don't wait for desperation so much? What if all day long, Lord help me, was a part of each conversation? Um, I know because many years I feel like I've, I've been lacking in the wisdom that I desire, I often will go into a conversation or into a meeting just kind of doing breath prayers. I don't know if any of you have practiced that, but... Lord, help me. Lord, give me wisdom. You know, Lord, Lord, give me the right words. Little things like that. Just little tiny moments of saying, all right, Lord, all right, Lord. Um, I think this is maybe what Paul was talking about when he speaks in 2 Corinthians, and he says um, that for Christ's sake, he delights in weaknesses, in hardships, and he lists all these things because he says, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. And he starts to say, it's in the times that I am empty, like a vessel, like a cup that gets poured out, when I finally acknowledge that I'm in over my head, that's when God somehow, the Spirit somehow fills. And he had that experience over and over again. And so he said, I delight in crying out for help, in feeling like I'm not all that, all those sorts of things. Um, When we say that we need help and acknowledge those limits, we have an opportunity um, to open ourselves up to the presence of God. I, I believe that often the way God meets us is not by miraculously changing the situation, like I mentioned, but miraculously changing our perspective, miraculously giving us an overwhelming sense of safety in uncertainty, perhaps, miraculously opening us up to hope once again, perhaps, miraculously providing strength and community, miraculously reminding us that we're loved and we're not alone. And of course, sometimes we do see our situations transformed and we celebrate those things. But it leaves us different because it's hard to be arrogant when we are crying out to God. Jesus tells this story about a couple guys at a temple praying. And one is super confident. It's in Luke 18, if you want to look it up, Luke 18, 9 to 14. Uh, one, of, one of the guys is this confident religious guy. The other is kind of a questionable fella um, who, uh, who is seen kind of as the outskirts of society. Um, and, uh, and in the midst of this, this, this one guy's a tax collector. Tax collectors were kind of extortionists most of the time. Um, so they were looked at as kind of the, the edge of, of Jewish people's... Yeah, Jewish folks did not like other Jewish tax collectors. Let's just say that. Um, but anyways, so what happens in this story is one says, hey, thank you so much, Lord. They're praying in the temple. One says, thanks so much that I am not like the messed up people over there. And the other says, Lord, I'm one of the messed up people. I mean, that's, that's the simplest way to tell the story. Lord, thank you so much that I am not like all of these people that have such big struggles. We all know he's lying through his teeth. But anyways, and then this other guy is just saying, Lord, I, I know I messed up. I need you. And Jesus says, that's the guy who walks away justified. And justified there means in right relationship with God, made whole. Nothing to do with the accomplishments, only the willingness to cry out for help. There's something so powerful in a story like that. So when we learn how to say help, we place ourselves in a posture where God meets us and works in us, and that becomes transformative. I just want to say one thing, that there's mystery here that we embrace. Like I said, we talk about these big, complicated feelings that come with saying, crying out to God and believing that God meets us. But I have to say, every time that I've cried out to God in my life, acknowledging that I'm in trouble or in need or in over my head, I have never regretted that. No claims about exactly how God works in each, but just that I have never in my life regretted crying out to God. Okay, part one. For many of us, the quiet confines of the hearts, right, and the minds, that, that might be easier to practice than its counterpart. Our neighbors are a super different story. 
Because like I said at the beginning, to say these words out loud in the presence of other people is super countercultural these days. Literally to say, this is hard. What I'm going through right now, this is hard. I feel weak. I don't know what to do. I've got conflicts that I can't resolve. I keep struggling with something. I, I feel like I keep messing up at work. I keep whatever. This, this is hard. Um, that's just a phrase that no one wants to say in like an Instagram culture. Uh, things are supposed to look pretty and they're supposed to be joyful and they're supposed to be easy and we are supposed to be independent. And that's not life. And so we'll never become a Jesus-centered people until we learn how to live life less independently. Uh, there's a, a simple little uh, story that's often told um, as a Muslim teaching story. It's about a little boy who's playing in a sandbox. And he's got, his little, um, he's got his little shovel, and he's just loving his time in the sandbox, and all of a sudden he hits something hard in the middle of the sandbox. And he begins to dig, and he finds that this, it's this rock, all right? And so he realizes there's a big rock in his sandbox. And, he's, and he starts shoveling underneath it, and he starts pushing it, and he's rolling it just a little bit, just flipping it over one at a time. And he gets to the end where the box, the box is, and there's like an eight-inch you know, edge to the sandbox. And he's trying, and he just can't get the, the rock up over. And, he's, and, he, and he gets down, and he leans, and he pulls with all of his might, and he can't do it. He just can't move this thing. His father has been watching outside the window this whole time. And his father finally comes up to him, and the kid's struggling, and his father says, son, why haven't you been using all the strength made available to you? And the kid goes, I have been using all the strength. I've been pulling with all my might. And he said, no, you haven't been using all the strength that is available to you, because you never said a word to me. And then he reached down, and together they quickly lifted the rock up and rolled it over. And sometimes we think about being strong or the strength that is available to us, and we do not include the community when we think about that. Uh, this is a real problem. It's a problem in our world. Um, it's a problem within the church, within God's church, that we don't take seriously the centrality of authentic community within the body of Christ. Individualism gets challenged by Jesus over and over again. Uh, he almost never asks someone to do something alone, if you've noticed. I find it really interesting in, in Acts 10, Jesus is sending out his disciples and he's sending them to prepare the way and help people understand the way of the kingdom. And, he's, and, and uh, I don't know if you can see this. I'll, I'll read it to you. It's really, really interesting. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. And he told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into this harvest field. So Jesus makes note and says... Whew, there are so many people who are open to the way of Jesus, the real, the real kingdom of God. So keep praying that we have more and more and more because we need them. And then he keeps people in pairs of two instead of sending them to 72 different areas, right? Like, if there's so few people, he should have split them up more. Instead of sending them two by two, he should have sent them one by one. But Jesus knew something about interdependence and he knew something about the value of not going through it alone. And so every time, I, I think sometimes we overplay this in a, church systems are made to elevate um, in unhealthy ways nuclear families. So often we talk about not going through life alone. It's all about people that are married. It's all about your spouse. But that's not, that's not the, the whole story by any stretch. 
when, when God says it's not good for man to be alone, he wasn't just saying folks should be married. He was saying people need to dwell in community because it's not good if they don't. And so, so we're giving examples over and over in the scripture. Now you can look at that and say um, that's different than actually acknowledging the need for help, right? Jesus sending out 72. That's great. He said, go do this. That's different than saying, I need help. Um, so the barriers, I think, that, uh, that lead us to not say help, I think we need to explore that for just a moment, and then we're going to um, finish with a, a little bit of a story. Um, I think this is linked to vulnerability, and I want us to talk about that. There's often this deep, deep-seated fear in us that people are going to reject us if we appear weak in any way. Um, in friendship, we often believe that to ask for help or to display vulnerability means that we have to allow ourselves to be seen as we are instead of the facade that we would prefer to project. And that is terrifying to us. Here's the thing, though. Your mind is playing a trick on you. Anybody ever heard of the studies that are called the beautiful mass effect? All right, fun. Okay, in 2018, out of Germany, there was uh, a series of six studies uh, at the University of Mannheim that explored how people feel about needing help, okay? And here's, here's what they found. <laughs> they found that, um, that when someone embraces their vulnerability and is open about it, it is more beautiful than they think it will be to others. So what that means is that when they asked people, let's say I asked you all to one by one come up here and sing a song that you create yourself in the next two minutes, okay? So just write a song, a little ditty, all right? And come up here and just share it with everybody, all right? How many of you are thinking about this right now and are like, oh my Lord, that would be horrible, so embarrassing. People would hear how lousy of a songwriter I am. People will hear that I can't carry a tune. People will see my knees shaking, right? Okay, but here's the next question. If you're sitting there and you heard me just ask someone to do that and they come up, knees shaking, what are you thinking about them? Holy cow, you are brave, right? That's exactly what you're thinking. So we, in our minds, we think that embracing vulnerability and weakness will make us appear weak and, and, and ugly and unattractive to other people. And other people, when they see others embrace their vulnerability, it does just the opposite. This is statistically proven. Vulnerability is attractive. We are drawn to people who we feel like can be honest enough because if we see them doing it, we become the next, fo- they're, they're the first follower, right? <laughs> and then we follow that and say, I guess I can too, because someone's broken the ice. So, so the, the reality of saying it is so hard to ask for help is true, but you need to realize that we actually understand and have compassion on each other more than how we think others will have compassion on us. Does that make sense? It's a big, so, so the idea, the, the reason it's called this is that when we think about our junk, we say, I am a mess. Nobody wants any part of that. So, so we just, we see this, right? We just say, I'm a mess. But when we hear somebody say, I am, I am really struggling. This is, this is a hard journey. I'm not sure what to do next. Or, whew, I've been working on this a long time and it's just tough. Um, 
we say, wow, that's, that's a beautiful mess. And so we embrace the fact that there is beauty in the struggle when someone else actually has the courage. So that's where the, that's where the phrase comes from. Um, in other words, all that say, your imperfections are more attractive than you believe they are. All right? So the more honest we are about those limits, the more real we become to other people. Um, and of course, saying help means I trust you enough to do this, to release my grasp of power. And trust is what builds connection. Um, the second thing that that's connected to is that if we're not vulnerable, there is a ceiling to which other people can love us. So sit with that a minute. Here's why. Brian, you and I are talking, and we're talking about what's going on in life, and I'm not talking about just laying it all out for any old stranger. I'm talking about in meaningful relationships, and, um, and I'm, I'm struggling in my marriage, right? And you say, how have you been? And I, there's trust there, so he's a friend that I would like to tell, but I can't share that because it just feels too, uh, whatever. Like, I'm, sp- I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to have it all together, right? But here's the thing. If, I don't, if, if I'm worried about being judged, so therefore I withhold my struggles with another person, then I will never be able to truly know if I am loved by that person. Does that make sense? We, we, we keep ourselves at a distance from others because we say, well, will you really love me if you really know me? And so it hinders, our, our lack of vulnerability actually hinders our ability to feel loved. It's so reversed. The cry for help opens the door in so many powerful ways if we allow it to do that. Um, yeah. Expressing a need for help is one way that we learn to trust that we are actually loved and worthy of love. Now, there's a difference between using other people here in, unhealth, in unhealthy ways, being needy, versus being able to be vulnerable and express needs. And talk about that in your groups of friends and discipleship meetings, stuff like that. Um, and we need to walk with complexity about what help looks like. Because sometimes it might be very clear and physical. I need help because one of my kids is homesick and I have a meeting for work. Can somebody help? <laughs> Can somebody hang out at our house? Right. That, that might be the case. Uh, but often it's very different than that. Often expressing help and being people who, who respond to that does not look like fixing problems. Sometimes we simply provide a validating presence to the reality of their struggle. We acknowledge that there are no easy answers and yes, this is hard. Um, a few weeks ago, we had a group here that uh, I think we just called it a conversation on church baggage. Um, which I know isn't relevant to any of you. Um, that's a joke. Wow. Man, tell you what. Uh, and we talked about the trauma that we faced in church experiences and why it becomes very difficult to engage. I know how many of you are like walking like, man, the church has really blown it and turned me off and wounded so bad. I know many of your stories. But in that time, the goal... Um, was not like, hey, three steps to like a happier, less triggered you, right? (laughs) Like that's not at all what the the point was. The help that we provided each other during that time was not fixing. It was safety of sitting together and knowing that we're loved and safe as we process hard emotions. That's what the value was. That's where the help occurred. It wasn't here, try this. Those things might emerge in individual conversations. But it was, wow, that's so hard. I'm glad that you're here, and I'm glad that you had the courage. 
That's how we help one another sometimes. So, um, yeah, so embracing a posture of help does not always need to be met with a physical solution. Sometimes we're just looking for people to remind us that we are not alone. And believe me, that is a helpful reminder. Uh, This whole thing is so broad, all right, which is uh, why this is such a significant word that can help us in in our discipleship. Um, The body of Christ is meant to be a place where help happens in all of those ways. But there's also one more. And that is that the church, as a body of Christ, is supposed to function in a way where it is constantly expressing the word help. (laughs) And we're constantly responding to it um, for the sake of God's mission. Uh, There's this little story in Exodus where Moses is like, he's leading a bunch of people and they're trying to work out all their relational issues. And uh, Moses' father-in-law, his name's Jethro, he comes in and he looks at Moses and he watches and there's this huge line of all these people lined up waiting to talk to Moses. Tell me your problem. Okay, um, I don't know. Split it 60-40. Go ahead, tell me your problem. All these things, all these relationships that are problem. And Jethro goes, yo, why are you doing this on your own? Like, you're supposed to be doing some other things. And right now, this is just, you're just buggering up the whole system. Like, you need, you need 50 people that can come alongside you and, and play other roles. Like, we're supposed to be doing this, this whole thing together, and you're missing it. So you need help. And he helped him see that. Moses, in his wisdom, said, okay, cool. That's a good idea. And I'm sure he was excited to get a little more sleep that night. But, but this whole idea, if you're going to get worn out, there's more hands available it's, our, it's okay for us to need help and ask for help, even as a, a church community. So Paul uses this imagery about uh, being the body, God's body. For just as each of us has one body with many members, these members do not all have the same function. So in Christ, we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. So Paul says, you, you're part of the, the, the physical hands and feet of Jesus in the world, and all of you matter. And so, so we all help each other become the heart and soul of Jesus for the world around us. Um, so in order to move, we need to be able to say, help, I need the rest of the body to step up. And, uh, and for others to say, I will. And sometimes um, we want to constantly practice that in the church, but not in a frenetic way, right? Uh, in a way that says if we're going to live out our mission, we all need to lend a hand. If we're going to live out our mission, we all need to, each other to, to express together in new ways. So um, as a leadership, our church knows that we are simply representatives of the collective community. We are not the ones in charge of doing everything. We're just representatives in charge of helping to provide those opportunities and together walk forward. So um, it's an important thing for us to admit. And so when we say help, you know what happens? new gifts are able to be used. New diversity in our church is able to be expressed. Um, More people participate in the mission of Jesus. And so we learn the cycle of asking and offering and acknowledging help. So we're going to do a practical example right now um, as a church because maybe God's going to stir something in you as we say help. So Sabrina, come forward, please. Um, Sabrina is one of our pastors and also over the years um, has helped launch and lead and develop a compassion team that is also now a full-fledged nonprofit. Um, But guess what's coming? We need some help. 
And so she's going to talk about that just a little bit. And um, I will, uh, I'll do your slides right here, Sabrina, for you if you want. Or do you want to do them? I appreciate the help, Keith. It's, yes, I will, See gladly, what I, did there? I will gladly help you. All right, so I'm Sabrina. Some of you may not know me, and if that's true, I just appreciate Keith taking the time to put my bio on the board <laughs> because this will help all of you. So you can just, I'm just going to put my name right up here, and this is my bio. This is hard, beautiful I'm going to get another chair if we need it. Um, yeah. Woo. Glasses. This is killing me because, like, I actually made a slideshow. I have such cool pictures that are not going to be there, but that's it. You can come forward and look at them if you want. Or we'll find a way to share the, the slideshow someplace, too. Okay. Alrighty. So one of the compassion teams here at LifePath is called Prison Care. See my shirt? Prison Care. And we use resources from the nonprofit that I run, which is Prison Care Incorporated, uh, to care for a prison called Crowley County Correctional Facility in Colorado. So why a prison in Colorado for Life Path Church, Delaware? It's a very good question. In January of 2018, my next to youngest son, Jay, was arrested for murder in Colorado. And so Crowley is the prison in which he was placed after he was sentenced to 68 years in prison. And clearly, I feel a personal connection. Um, right back to the this is hard part, the reason I came in late this morning is because there is a crisis taking place at the prison where Jay is right now. And he called as we were pulling into the parking lot. And I had to stay in my car and call the um, case management helpline and send an emergency email to the state. Um, so this is hard. And I'm a beautiful mess. We formed a team in March of 2021 here at LifePath to explore ways to offer support for positive prison culture from the outside at Crowley. A prison care team is not traditional prison ministry, okay? I'm a huge fan of prison ministry work. And that's the kind that brings volunteers inside the razor wire, and they offer worship gatherings, and they offer Bible studies and prayer meetings, and it's wonderful, but the vast majority of incarcerated people will never go to these things. They are either hard and fast atheists, or they've been hurt by the church, or they're completely confused by conflicting things that they've heard about God, or whatever, the list goes on, but most people will not participate in these things. So my bedrock philosophy when I founded Prison Care Incorporated was that these people, the ones who don't want to talk about Jesus, still need his love and redemption. And so maybe by caring for their needs emotionally and relationally, maybe we're going to find that they're drawn to him. But even if they never are, we're doing a good job of following Jesus by loving them, regardless of their decision. So the primary distinctive about Prison Care Incorporated as a nonprofit is that it seeks to care for everyone inside a prison. So that's the incarcerated residents, and that's also the correctional officers, the staff, the caseworkers, the administration, everyone inside a prison. Organizations connected to prison reform invariably pick one side or the other, okay? Inmate advocacy, education, arts, programming, right? Or the unions that represent the correctional officers and try to get them safer working conditions and better training and better pay. Um, you, you generally just have to choose a side. But prison care is nonpartisan because nobody actually has to lose for somebody else to win. 
We speak of prisons as neighborhoods. Uh, you have people who live there 24-7. They're called inmates or offenders. But you also have staff who are working incredibly long hours, and they spend the vast percentage of their lives inside the razor wire, not out here in the real world. They are, they are residents of that neighborhood, too. And the toxic conditions that are inside prison facilities are affecting everyone. It doesn't matter which uniform they're wearing. So while there are many toxic elements in a prison neighborhood, prison care is focusing on mental, emotional, and relational needs that are going unmet among all of these people. Inmates feel forgotten. So do correctional staff. Inmates have lost hope for humanity. Oh, believe me, so have correctional staff. Hmm. Inmates feel institutionalized, misunderstood, lonely, unappreciated. So do correctional staff. Inmates and correctional staff suffer from PTSD at rates vastly higher than the general population. Inmates commit suicide, excuse me, this is hard, beautiful mess, far more often than people on the outside. And three correctional officers die by suicide every week in the United States of America. The statistics go on and on. If you want to learn more, listen to the Prison Care Podcast, available on all your favorite podcasting platforms. You can learn lots of stuff there. Now, let's look specifically at Life Paths Compassion Team for Prison Care, because we're offering care specifically to Crowley County Correctional Facility. What does that mean? Well, I want to give you a truly personal look on a very small screen um, of what is happening with our involvement in Crowley. And I want to be vulnerable enough to honestly ask for help in communicating, in continuing this work, because some of this information on the very tiny screen is going to be news even to the people who have been a part of the Prison Care Compassion Team since the beginning, because I've really lost my ability to communicate effectively with our team because I'm overwhelmed with the national. And so I've gotten a little little drowny. I've gotten swamped, so keep that in the back of your mind as I introduce you to some of the specific things that are going on at Crowley. We need help. Um, so first of all, first picture is not a mug shot. We're just gonna, can I spin this? Sure. You're not really a pastor at Life Path if you don't love whiteboards. It's just a thing. <laughs> Thank you. This is not a mugshot. Um, people in prison hate it that outside people only ever see them in their mugshots. I mean, it's typically the worst picture you're ever going to have taken in your life, right? Sometimes residents can pay to have a photo sent to take ho- or to send home, um, and they have to pay four dollars for a digital picture printed out on somebody's little printer on their desk. But still, it's something. So this is not a mugshot, this is Dylan. (laughs) Um, And he's our friend, and he's a board member at Prison Care Incorporated, and his real picture is there on the little screen. He serves as the inside community director, helping us design and implement community building opportunities inside Crowley. He mentors others, he leads small groups, he helps facilitate music collaboration, Um, he volunteers when the facility goes on lockdown. He is amazing. He's a person, y'all. He's 24 years old. He's been incarcerated since he was 18. There's a chance he'll get out in 20 years. He loves to read, 
plays bass, plays guitar, plays a little drums, sings, writes poetry. He's awesome. He raises puppies. He's training a puppy named Vega right now who will be a service dog. Um, he's a person, a full-on person. He is not a Department of Corrections number, and he is more than his last name. And this is a huge piece of what our prison care team is doing. We are getting to know, as individuals, some people who are dehumanized in almost every other area of their lives. We are actively seeing individuals who feel invisible. And we're learning from people who are living through things that most of us have never experienced and only understand in the most general terms. So here's something we learned from one of Dylan's letters. And I'm going to have to look at it. Wait, I have it here too. So. You are not only giving me a voice, says Dylan, but you're giving everyone I've seen and talked to a voice as well. And real change will happen because of it. Just having you and your circle around me giving me the opportunity to work with you, has completely changed my life. I feel like I have a future, a chance I didn't think I'd have even pre-incarceration. All right, so moving on to the whiteboard. This is Freddie. Freddie's five foot three, Dylan's six foot four. I'm not kidding. That's an accurate <laughs> representation. Okay. Our friend Freddie is trying to encourage me to learn Spanish. Hola, Freddie. He is from El Salvador. Freddie was already working hard to keep himself growing as a person and to help others with that same desire before we ever met him. So what we did is we came alongside and we have become an encouragement and a resource for his work. Freddie loves Jesus. Freddie wants to be a pastor. Freddie wants to mentor others. And so we periodically learn about a need in the seven habits of highly effective people on the inside group that he facilitates. And we buy books on Amazon that he would like to share with his students and his mentees, and we send them in. And he reads them, and he shares them, and then they donate them to the prison library so that other people can learn from them. Here's something I learned from Freddie. I'm a Seven Habits core member to participate to help others to learn or to change the ways of living. We have like 66 students, and we encourage them by our example to be proactive. The habit of choices, because we are here because of our choices. You know, there are incarcerated people who understand the role that their own choices play in how their lives are going to unfold every day, and they need support to continue on that path of responsible living. Okay, and then sometimes a mugshot is all I can get a hold of because I try to steal stuff off of people's social media, but that's Damon. All I have of him is a mugshot. Looks like a criminal, doesn't he? He could definitely answer the casting call for a bad guy in a movie. He looks rough. And Damon is indeed someone who has been a bad guy. He is serving a sentence of life without the possibility of parole because he was convicted of murder. But he is also the founder of a peer support group for recovery from domestic and intimate partner violence. And his group seeks to help both abusers and victims because he has learned that most abusers were victims at some time in the past. In addition, Damon is courageously 
ending the silence about men who are beaten by their intimate partners. This is a heartbreaking piece of his own story, and he is learning that it is surprisingly a piece of many other men's stories at Crowley as well. So here's something we learned from Damon. I cobbled together some resources for domestic violence recovery. I sent him in some bits and pieces of different workbooks that he began putting together and then customizing for his group. He said, thank you, Sabrina, for being my sounding board. Please help me help people. Tell me what I need to do to get our DV classes out of my mind and into fruition. My character on this yard is sound. I stay out of trouble. I'm just praying the administration gives us the green light to change lives. You know, the administration inside a prison is typically not supportive of inmate-initiated programming. They're too busy stomping fires all day to pay attention to somebody who asks for some classroom space or for access to the photocopier to make handouts for their group. They're not being jerks. They are overworked and under-resourced. So even guys like Damon who are doing exactly what the administration is actually hoping everybody will do, don't get any support to actually do it. Damon needs us. I have 18 active pen pals right now. I have 32 total. 18 who write back and forth with me very regularly. And we have a number of people on our team who are pen pals to various people. Most don't have 18. I have a little bit of a problem with pen pal addiction, but that's a different support group. <laughs> Sorry. Um, there are many more with whom we're in casual relationships. We have a cute little, little multi-slide here. There's Harold. I exchange book reviews with him. He's the book cart porter. We read books that we like, and then we write reviews back and forth. He wants to know why people keep saying he needs to get in touch with his emotions, because he thinks that's weird. <laughs> but, uh, Life Path held a graduation party for one of our pen pals, Zachary, mm -hmm. who completed his BS a few months ago. And we took pictures of the party, had cake and balloons, and everybody wrote notes of congratulations, and we sent all that into him. Incidentally, we also put $25 on his books as a graduation gift, and it was confiscated, and nobody ever mentioned that to us until we heard about it through the grapevine. The system is really badly broken, but... Um, there's Brian. Brian's mom and I have hugged and cried in the parking lot at the prison a number of times when we've been there on visits together. Additionally, inmates often get moved to a new facility for any number of reasons. There are three guys who were initially at Crowley. They were part of our early work there, and they are now in other prisons in Colorado. But they've stayed in contact with us because they want to work to build community in those new facilities. That includes Carlton, who was one of our earliest guys. He's starting a prison care team from the inside at Fremont Correctional Facility right now. And um, our friend Corey, who is a writer and an artist, and he is working on creating materials for me to share on the outside to help raise awareness for reform needs. And my son Jay, who just got transferred out of Crowley uh, a week ago. Um, but I told you that the most distinct feature of the prison care model is that we are equally concerned for the staff in a prison. So we have a cute little montage of pictures that I stole from social media of a bunch of staffers at Crowley. And you can just imagine it. I'm not going to try to draw them. Um, this is where we've had the steepest learning curve, guys. Staff are tough. They are distrustful. Administration is hard to reach. When we do connect, they are distrustful as well. The problem is that manipulation is the norm inside a prison. It just is. And, and so they have learned not to ask for help or accept help from anybody, because there's always strings attached. So while we know the staffers on the little screen, 
and we know a bunch of others for whom I didn't steal pictures. Um, we have a tough time finding meaningful ways to support them. We've tried a bunch of stuff, none of it's really worked except for prayer and except for our work with the residents because residents who are living meaningful lives are much less prone to violence. So by loving on Damon and by loving on Freddie and all of his students and by loving on Dylan and, and resourcing all of his community building ideas, we are making the prison a safer place for the staff who work there, but it's indirect support. But recently, very recently, we have learned of a new initiative on a much higher level um, that is opening up the doors to provide counseling, mental health resources for corrections staff, in particular in the wake of a traumatic incident at the prison. And this is happening from such a high-level, academically respected, you know, peer-reviewed study stuff that it's being brought in from the state level. So we're very hopeful that this is going to take off nationwide. And what we're hoping to do is partner with Desert Waters Correctional Counseling Services and become um, supporters of the work that they are doing, getting mental health support in place for correction staff who desperately need it. So stay tuned. Oh yeah, stay tuned. See, that's where I need help, <laughs> the stay tuned part. I learn all kinds of cool things. This is my life, this is my bread and butter. This is hard, but this is my bread and butter. And I'm up to my eyeballs in communication about what's happening in corrections all the time. I cannot for the life of me remember to tell anybody on my compassion team at LifePath. <laughs> I, I, can't, I can't do it, my, it's, it's not working. I need help. Um, so we have a list of what can you do that will again be on a very small screen. Shall I read them for you, and Sabrina? Sure, Keith, take it All away. Right. There's a lot you can do, actually. And a lot of this was not there two years ago when we started this team because we were making it up as we went along. So these are things that have developed as we've learned more. And that's exciting. It means we're going to keep learning more ways for different kinds of people to be involved. Go for it. Yeah, so there's, there's different ways of, uh, and levels of connection here. But you can attend our monthly Zoom. Uh, which is at the last Monday of the month at 7 p.m., just a, an opportunity for updates, brainstorming, support, learning more about the system um, of what prison care is. You can learn how to become a pen pal encourager and write letters. Um, we need that right now a lot. Uh, that might be intimidating, but it's also an incredibly powerful service, and we just need to spread the spread the wealth out yeah. so that people don't become and overwhelmed. And you do not have to figure out how to do this on your own. I, yes. That's one of the things I want to do is set up an actual teaching session so that people feel like they have been taught how to do this so that you're not just like, oh, I don't know what to say. If words aren't your thing, you can start an art exchange with a resident, sending in a photo of original art and receiving the work of an incarcerated artist to appreciate as well. Uh, you can help, this is the big ask, right, or one of them, you can help organize our prison care team Sorting, spreadsheet stuff, scheduling, collecting data, group me, just kind of helping to manage how things work and, and keep things moving in the right direction. We need another point person at, at this point. Uh, you can help with fundraising or giving for prison care and the mission that they're doing. So you can participate personally or you can help find funds. Um, you can lean into prayer uh, and simply be a significant prayer support. We have multiple people whose calling toward prison care is prayer. Um, and it's been, it's been powerful. Yeah. Uh, you can curate mental wellness resources uh, that we can send to incarcerated people. So think about ways that could be an encouragement um, through print. Literally, like, what's your favorite title for personal growth, yeah. self-help material? Shoot me an email, and I'm going to add it to my list. Seriously, that easy. You can host a house party or an awareness event. 
uh, and uh, just help get other people on board. One of the unique things about the mission is that um, people who <laughs> have some challenges and issues with church and organized religion <laughs> hear what we're doing and are like, oh, I can get behind that, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, so we spread the, the Do you know that I regularly God. get asked, so do people have to, like, say yeah. that they're Christians to be one of your pen pals? Isn't that sad that people think that that's going to be, like, so if you love Jesus, we're willing to talk to you. If not, I'm sorry, you'll have to go away. <laughs> that messed up. And then finally is uh, you can just learn by following the Prison Care Podcast, but also building the momentum there and social media, and you can share posts and things like that. So some low-hanging fruit for options right there, too. Yep. I got pens. I got magnets on the little table by the Life Path sign as you walk into the auditorium. Help yourself. Grab 15, whatever. Um, ask me questions. Reach out. But there's some amazing stuff happening literally just inside one prison with some incredible human beings that we've been walking alongside for two years now. You want to know these people. They're cool people. Hmm. Yeah. And so it's been Thanks, a while y'all. since we did a deep dive, but also we felt like it was kind of a good time since we're talking about like the value of asking for help and, and, and embracing the word that this is okay for us to actually even do it as a church and say, we need help. We need people to keep stepping up for uh, the love, um, yeah, the love and redemptive mission of Jesus that, that God is leading us toward. So thanks, Sabrina. Um, we're going to wrap up our gathering. Uh, particularly, I loved the questions for dialogue this week, um, but we're short on time and we're short on screen, and so um, it's going to be really hard. But I will, uh, I, I'm willing, if you want to follow up, I can shoot you. I know a bunch of you um, use these questions in your own dialogue, families, friends, discipleship partners, meal communities. Um, but the questions that are worth thinking about are what are the biggest barriers that you sense to vulnerability with God on the personal level? Where have you seen the beauty of the body of Christ during a cry for help? Let that be an encouragement to you. Uh, how can a willingness to say help strengthen a friendship of yours? How do we create together a culture where we can freely give and receive help? And what roles do boundaries play in all of this? All of the asking for help and expressing vulnerability. Where are the boundaries? So those are like, I'm super proud of those questions, actually. Those are good, valuable questions to lean into that, that we kind of landed on. And so I, I want to encourage you to think through those. I'm sorry we can't see them on the screen right now. Um, so we are, uh, we're going to finish with just a few moments. Uh, again, we don't have our, our connection with sound, so one of you musicians, just come up and play some music for us if you're still in the room. Phil, it's you, brother. Thanks, man. We don't have our, our connection to the embedded. Um, so as, as Phil just plays um, guitar for a little bit, we want to just invite you to come up as we do to, to um, complete, and we'd have just a couple announcements afterwards, but to complete each of our gatherings by, central, by, by centralizing Jesus, by moving toward Jesus. When we talk about receiving help, even the act of coming down to receive the bread and the cup that Jesus offered is, is us saying, I need help. I need the Spirit of Christ. I need the Spirit of Christ to empower me to love well this week, to keep walking toward toward the kingdom. And so we receive this. We remember the love and the sacrifice of Jesus and the new life that he brings. And we remember that as we take the bread and the juice or, or the wine, that in that moment it becomes energy in us. We're saying, Lord, we need you. And we're okay with that need. 
because we know that you will come and fill the gaps that we have in our life and lead us toward fullness of life with others. So, so take a moment and receive, receive the help that God promises to offer um, and walk in peace.